Hello again. Hello again, Fight fans, and welcome to episode number 189A of the Neutral Corner Boxing Podcast. I am your host, Michael Montero, for Boxing Monthly Magazine and BoxingMonthly.com. And uh, today, it has been a crazy, crazy busy day for me. Of course, you guys know I'm here in Los Angeles, and I got here a few days ago, late last week, this morning in Santa Monica, which is out at the beach, uh, maybe... I don't know, 20 miles, probably not even 20 miles from where I'm at in downtown LA. But of course, here that takes at least an hour to drive there. Earlier today, there was a media lunch for Gennady Golovkin and his team, Tom Loeffler, Jonathan Banks, everybody was there. Uh, just meeting with a very select group of Los Angeles press that I was lucky enough to be invited to before they take off to New York, final preparations for his fight against Sergei Derevyanchenko. So, I got a quick interview with Gennady Golovkin in that will be posted up on my channel. And I wrote a quick article just about the the media luncheon and some of the things Team Triple G talked about. Look for that on ringtv.com. Also, on ringtv.com, you can see uh, my review, my recap, I should say, of the PVC on FS1 card that we will review in this episode. It was a really good, exciting card. A couple of one-hitter quitter knockouts. Uh, knockout of the year contenders, and a good upset special in the main event. So make sure you check that out. Also, later this week, you're going to get uh, a preview of John Molina's fight against um, Jose Cito Lopez with an interview that I posted on my channel, but also I did a write-up, and that will be posted on ringtv.com as well. So guys, I'm doing a bunch of work this week. I've been running around like a chicken with my head cut off. I'm freaking exhausted. I hope my voice holds up in this episode and right away, we got the Super Chat Pledge from C.J. Duncan. Thank you so much, brother. I hope you're doing well. And uh, I really, really do appreciate it. Guys, uh, go ahead and smash that like button once again. Whoever disliked, whoever thumbs down the video already, will you give me your name? Because you're the same prick that does that on every video. I know you're trolling. It's kind of hilarious. I just want to know who the hell you are. All right, let's get it started, man. Before, before I do... Get into news and notes. Guys, just a quick reminder. I don't charge a monetary fee for this podcast, right? You could go ahead and, and contribute on Super Chat here in the live YouTube uh, video, just like CJ Duncan did. Or you could go to our uh, Patreon page, patreon.com slash Unboxing. You could pick up an MOB t-shirt if you want to help out. The best thing you could do for me, though, is just spread the word about this channel, man. If you get something from this podcast... Whether you're watching on YouTube or you're listening on one of the many, many platforms that we're on as far as the audio podcast goes around the world, please just spread the word because I am not exclusive to any one platform. You guys know that this is a Boxing Monthly podcast for Boxing Monthly Magazine, but of course I do a lot of work with Ring Magazine, Ring TV Now, and other platforms. I was just on SB Nation Radio back on the Dave Smith Show uh, this past weekend, so I do Radio work, TV work, basically I squeeze my ass where it will fit in. But I don't pay uh, homage to any one platform. I am an independent operator. So the best thing you could do to help me out is spread the word, whether it's on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatever it is, or all of the above. Spread the word and give me a like, a follow, a rating, a review on every platform you can. You know, I know some of you guys have done it, let's say on Spotify or iHeartRadio, but you haven't done it on iTunes yet. And I know it's a pain in the ass to go in there and log in and do it, but it's a small little thing that goes a long way for me. So that is what I ask of you. If you get something out of this show, and I think you guys do, you know, we have a great show here that um, a lot of people in the industry, more and more of them are taking a look at. They can't say that publicly. They can't play favorites. But I get emails and messages, and then when I meet people, and I've met several people already this week here in L.A., they pull me aside, and they're like, yo, Mike, I like your show. 
I, I, I enjoy your show, man. Keep doing what you're doing. You got eyes on you. You got people watching you. Keep doing what you're doing. You're in a good spot. So that makes me feel good. When you guys, um, when you guys chime in and, and support the show and when you spread the word, and then when other folks in the industry notice it too, it makes me feel good. So anyway, let's, let's get the party started with this whole Gary Russell situation. So for those of you who don't know, Gary Russell Jr., featherweight titleist, he's been calling out Leo Santa Cruz for ages. And I think Leo has another title. And who's been ducking the other, we don't know for sure. But if you look at their recent opposition, uh, neither guy's really fought world beaters. However, Gary Russell Jr. did fight Vasily Lomachenko. And I don't think Leo Santa Cruz and his team would go anywhere near Vasily Lomachenko. So I will give Gary Russell that much credit. Russell has been horribly inactive. Now, I used to troll and make fun of him as it being 100% his, his fault. But he has expressed frustrations with uh, PBC and Al Heyman and all those guys not keeping him active enough. And I've heard some things off the record, I can't say I'm on record, that make that pretty believable for me. I do think a lot of his inactivity has been uh, due to his management. It's also Gary Russell's fault, let me be clear about that. But anyway, this weekend, Gary Russell posts a video with him and Leo Santa Cruz's father, Leo Santa Cruz Sr., who, as you all know, uh, had issues with cancer. He was a cancer survivor. He's been sick recently. Um, wonderful man. The Leo Santa Cruz family, they're great people. Everyone loves them, especially here in Southern California. But, uh, you know, basically Gary put his arms around Leo Sr., kind of played with his gold chains because Leo Sr. has a lot of bling, and um, kind of walked away and just basically said, he was kind of shooting a selfie video and said, hey, Leo, Leo Jr., uh, I just put my hands on your pops because you won't get in the ring with me. And again, I'm paraphrasing. This isn't a direct quote. But you won't get in the ring with me, so I just put my hands on your pops. You know, I should go back there. I, I could have did more. I could do more. Basically just trying to goad Leo Santa Cruz Jr. into taking a fight. Now, I posted it on Twitter, and I tweeted about it. I've talked about it with a few people. And of course, this led to a bunch of outrage. There's a lot of people that are really, really pissed off at Gary Russell Jr., they say that this crossed the line. Now, let me be clear. I am not condoning what the hell Gary Russell Jr. did. I wouldn't do it. If I were advising a fighter, I would tell them to steer clear of that kind of bullshit. Because it's only going to make you look like a dick. But here's the thing, guys. This is boxing. And sometimes when you're a fighter like Gary Russell Jr., if your management ain't doing dick for you, they're not getting you the fight that you want, the big fights that you want, the paydays that you want. And you really don't have a fan base. Let's face it, Gary Russell Jr. doesn't really have a fan base. Leo Santa Cruz does. So he needs Leo. It's not the other way around. Sometimes you got to do something crazy as hell to get people talking. Again, I'm not condoning what Gary did. But I can understand intellectually why he may feel he needed to do some crazy shit like that to get attention. And not necessarily to get attention from Leo Santa Cruz, because he always had Leo Santa Cruz's attention. They fight for the same promoter, advisor, whatever. It's to get attention from Leo Santa Cruz's fans. And he did that. Leo Santa Cruz's fans were pissed off, bitching on Twitter. People were talking about, you know, acts of violence, things like that. So Gary Russell Jr. got the fans' attention and now the fans are going to go to Leo Santa Cruz Jr. and say, it's one of two things. It's either, hey, man, ignore this punk. Don't give him what he wants. He don't deserve it. Or it's, man, you got to defend your honor. This dude put hands on your father. You got to do it for La Raza. You got to do it for La Gente, right? That's the kind of tweets I'm seeing. That's the kind of post I'm seeing. And that's the sort of rhetoric that Leo Santa Cruz Jr. is going to respond to. Now, Al Heyman does play favorites. And Santa Cruz is one of Al Heyman's favorites. That's why he's protected him so much. But at this point, it would not surprise me if Leo went into Uncle Al's office, knocked on the door and said, look, I want to fight that bitch. Get him in the ring. Let's make it happen. So if all this drama eventually leads up to a fight between Gary Russell Jr. and Leo Santa Cruz Jr., look, that is probably the best fight that could be made at featherweight. 
That is a fight that is several years overdue. So if it leads to that fight, so be it. Do I love what Russell did? Would I do it? Would I advise my fighter to do it? No. Absolutely not. But it just might end up getting you guys the fight that you want. Also, I should add this. Um, Actually, now I won't go there. I lost my train of thought. But, oh, I should, yeah, okay. I should add this. Again, guys, I'm really tired. I've been, I'm running on fumes right now. It's been a long day. Gary Russell Jr., there is another video with him out there on social media where he's saying, man, I wouldn't put hands on, on Leo Sr. Come on, man. This was all just me trying to get people talking and trying to get a fight. I would never do that. I'm not that kind of guy. It is funny that video is not making the rounds on social media, but I'm, I've seen it. It's recent. It came after that first video, so it's out there. You guys can find it. Gary Russell Jr. is never going to put hands on Leo Sr. And let me tell you this. Leo Sr. ain't a punk. That, that's a hard man, and that's a real man. If, it doesn't matter how sick he is, how old he is, whatever. If Gary Russell Jr. actually threatened him and put hands on him, and he don't have to speak English or understand English very well to understand if he's being threatened. If he felt really, truly threatened... I'm sure that old man would have knuckled up and popped Gary Russell Jr. It probably wouldn't have ended well for him, but he would have held his own. And clearly he didn't do that. So guys, this is the sport of boxing. You've seen way more, seen and heard way more egregious bullshit than this in the last couple years. Stop being so damn triggered and offended by everything. Read between the lines, read between the bullshit, and see what this is. All right? Okay, what else? Okay, more PBC news. Keith Thurman, one time, one time Keith Thurman. Uh, he technically did fight twice this year, but one was a, supposed to be a tune-up against Jose Cito Lopez. It was a much more difficult than expected tune-up. And then, of course, the fight against Manny Pacquiao. Well, again, he injured his left hand, I think it was. There was inflammation in his left hand. I think before it was the elbow, now it's the hand. Uh, the elbow bone is connected to the, uh, you young guys won't even know what that reference means. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so left hand is hurt, surgery, he's out for the rest of the year. He's talking about coming back next summer, probably next May or June. So you're probably going to get one time, one time in 2020. L- look, man, I, I, I don't even know what to say about Keith Thurman anymore. I thought maybe this fight with Manny would be a turning point for him because he did perform so well that there's a lot of things he could learn from. He was down pretty badly early. I mean, he was dropped in the first round and Pacquiao built up this early lead, but Thurman was able to make a charge in the middle rounds and comes back and makes it interesting. He clearly lost, but he made it competitive. So I thought he showed some grit in something he could really build on in that fight in take two Fights maybe with Spence or somebody like that. Uh, but doesn't look like it's going to happen. Jack Alter clearly lost. Yes. Keith Thurman clearly lost to Manny Pacquiao. That, that was a close fight, but he clearly lost. It, a, fi- a fight could be very, very close, but still with a clear winner. That's what that fight was. Jack, you can't score that fight for Keith Thurman. You can't. You, you just can't score that fight for Keith Thurman. It, it just, just did not do enough. Okay, one last note here, and this is kind of a sad thing. Sad, well, not kind of sad, it's very sad. Bulgarian fighter, and I'm, I apologize to his family because I'm going to butcher this name. Isis Velichkov. Isis Velichkov. Hopefully I got that close to correct. Died from injury suffering about in Albania this last Saturday. Uh, fight in Albania, Bulgarian fighter fighting in Albania, only 21 years old. Uh, first name is Isus, Isus, I-S-U-S, Isus Velichkov died in the ring, uh, or I think he, uh, I think he was unconscious in the ring and then later on died. So um, yeah, it's uh, another sad story. Guys, we still lose fighters all the time in boxing, it, and it, most of the time it goes under the radar. Maxim Dadashev and that whole situation, that was on ESPN earlier this year. So that got mainstream media attention. This is another one, and we get a bunch of these around the world every year. 
that nobody in the media is talking about. I'm sure you guys haven't even heard about this on any other podcast. You probably won't, but you're going to hear it here because I love fighters. I care about fighters. Okay, Friday, September 20th. Let's review what happened. We had a card in uh, Midland, Texas, and this was somewhat of a homecoming that didn't end well for lightweight prospect Michael Dutch over. Uh, more about him in a second. Let's talk about a couple of these other guys. And these are Thompson Boxing guys that uh, were fighting just a showbox in Texas. Uh, Thompson Boxing, one of the most successful club-level promoters in all of boxing, not just in America, but around the world. They do a great job as a quote-unquote club-level promoter. And they got a few prospects here that are ready to contend soon. But uh, Brandon Lee... Brandon Lee seven, improves to 17-0 with a KO2 win over Milton Arrows. Uh, so Brandon Lee looked great in this fight. De- devastating knockout. Uh, impressive record. I think his, his record is uh, all stoppages. I think he's 17-0 with 17 stoppages. Don't quote me on that. But um, here's the thing. Fairly weak opposition. Hasn't really fought any killers yet. So don't get too excited about the record. He needs rounds in development right now. There's some tools there, but he needs some rounds in development. Thing is, he's only 20 years old. I think this fight was kind of at a, it was technically a welterweight fight, but it wasn't at the full 147 weight limit. So he's kind of fought in between 140, 147. He will obviously fill in as a full welterweight over the next couple years, and he could develop into a really interesting well to a prospect. Also, uh, Ruben Villa improved to 17-0 and with a unanimous decision win over Jose Enrique Vivas. Uh, so for Villa, he's had 10-rounders his last two fights. Both fights went to distance. That's good. 20 rounds. He's a good-looking prospect. Here's the thing. 17 fights, only five knockouts. So he's a featherweight. Uh, lack of pop against the elite-level featherweights, I think is eventually going to cost him. But on the right night, the right matchup, the right style matchup, this guy could maybe win a title one day, okay? He's not quite ready for that, but he's ready to fight a guy in the top 10. Let's talk about Michael Dutchover, lightweight prospect, who is facing Thomas Matisse, who's a good quality prize fighter, been in there with some decent fighters, got some skills. I think he's out of Cleveland, Ohio. So he's got that good, skillful Midwestern style. And uh, this goes down as a TKO8 loss for Dutchover due to a cut. So there was a, for Dutchover, I should mention, this is his first loss as a pro, obviously. He came into this fight 13-0. This was his first time going past the sixth round. So he was getting rounds in. He was winning the fight. I believe two of the judges, two to three judges, had him winning at the time of his stoppage. However, I saw some... Reports in the media that he was dominating the fight. No. He, he clearly lost some rounds. And he was getting caught. And Matisse was making adjustments in there. So this wasn't an easy... Like, like this wasn't a route for Dutchover. This was a very, very close fight that was really up for grabs going into the later rounds, in my opinion. Robert Velez, the ref, stopped the fight with one minute and 33 seconds left in the eighth round based on a ruling by the ringside physician. There was a cut on Dutchover's head. Ringside physician there with the Texas Commission said, this fight's over, he cannot fight on. So the ref kind of has to go by what the ring doctor says. So when the ring doctor made that ruling, ref waves it off. TKO win for Matisse because the ref ruled the cut was from a punch. So, obviously, many are going to compare this to when Tyson Fury cut himself against, well, he didn't cut himself, Otto Verlin cut him a week ago in Las Vegas. And that fight wasn't stopped. So, you guys probably saw the memes where you see Dutchover's picture, the cut, it says not stopped. Right under that is a picture of Tyson Fury with his grotesque cut. And it's Michael Dutchover stopped, Tyson Fury not stopped. You guys probably saw those memes. To me, it's a little unfair and unprofessional, especially if credentialed media people are making that comparison. I understand why fans would do it. However, this was not the same situation. Now, you guys know I'm, I'm, I don't agree with ESPN promoting this lineal champion bullshit. And by the way, the PBC is promoting it too. I'm seeing more and more things. I learned some more things off the record today, talking to some media guys that I can't say on the record here. But let me just tell you this. Fox and ESPN, are they got a plan 
And they're both in bed with this whole lineal shit. We'll talk more about that in the coming months, I'm sure. Anyway, <laughs> I see you guys trolling the lineal shit on the chat. Uh, look, regardless if you consider Fury the champion or not, and I clearly don't, he's obviously a top heavyweight. And, and I ain't mad at you if you rate him number one right now. He's also a veteran that's got a few more years left in his career. And there is a huge title shot for him in a rematch with Deontay Wilder on the line in that fight against Aldo Valin. So that fight, a cut, is going to be treated differently than a young kid in his early 20s cutting himself. Because here's, here's a couple of differences, okay? First of all, you're dealing with Nevada, which is an experienced commission. And they, believe me, they want that Fury Wilder rematch there in Vegas. Um, versus Texas, a more inexperienced commission. Also, it's not like this fight was in Dallas, Texas or Houston, Texas. It was in Midland, Texas. Very, very different, okay? This isn't a very experienced fight market. So not that that should have anything to do with it, but I do think it played a, somewhat of a role. But guys, if you have a young man, let's just say Dutch over. Let's just, let's just hypothetically, Ring Doctor lets him fight. And in the ninth round, there's another headbutt. The headbutt's so bad that the bone's exposed and it damages the nerve around the eye socket. And Michael Dutchover's vision is permanently impaired. Very possible. We've seen that happen in boxing a million times. We just saw a ring death again last weekend. He's only 20-something. I can't remember his exact age. I think he's like 23 or something. Young 20s. Probably has 10 plus more years of fighting in front of him has title opportunities down the line, possibly, if he continues to progress. If you let him go and he suffers a permanent injury or an injury that permanently alters his vision or affects him as a fighter, before he even gets a title opportunity, before he even gets to make real money, you're significantly changing a young man's life. On the other hand, with Tyson Fury, this dude had, he's not a prospect anymore. He's been there, done that. The stakes are higher. When the stakes are higher, you let, a, you let things go a little bit more. That's the way it looks, okay? Uh, or that's the way it works. So with Fury, I can understand why the ref let him continue. Also, the ring doctor didn't stop it. The ring doctor in Nevada, no doubt, has seen thousands more cuts. I don't even think that's an exaggeration. At least hundreds more, but definitely thousands more uh, possibly thousands more cuts and fights and injuries than the ring doctor in Texas, especially Midland, Texas. So the experience level is different here. And given all the things we've seen with ring deaths and everything this year, highly publicized ring deaths, that uh, Maxim Dadashov happened in Maryland. That was a you know, secondary commission. Maybe the ring doctor in Texas overreacted. But I don't think, I would have let him fight on maybe another round and see what he could do. That's, that's what I would have done. But you can't compare that to this situation with Tyson Fury. I just think that's an unfair comparison. And uh, going back to what I talked about a second ago here, when you actually look at punch numbers, Matisse landed more punches. Matisse landed 187 punches to Dutch over his 121, and he was more accurate. He also landed 97 jabs to Dutch over his 18 jabs. Dutch over had a slight edge in power connects. So you really look at the stats. This was a very, very close fight. It's not like Dutchover was dominating a guy and then there was a freak cut and the ref stopped it. This was a very, very close fight. The best thing they could do, the best thing they could do is an immediate rematch early next year and go right back to Midland, Texas because there was a good energetic crowd there for Dutchover. Go right back to the scene of the crime and do it again. And let's see if Dutchover can make adjustments and avoid getting hit so cleanly to where he gets cut next time. I think that's what they should do. There's plenty here, seven, eight rounds for Dutchover to look at and to improve upon. Let's see if he could do that. That's the best. That's the silver lining in this cloud. And so he suffers a TKO eight loss here. If he comes back next year and beats Matisse, who gives a shit? It's just a loss. All right, Saturday, September 21st in Mexicali, Mexico, Golden Boy Promotions, Facebook Watch, Joseph Diaz scores a majority decision win over Venezuela Mexican Jesus Cuadro. 
who's fought all over the world, usually used as an opponent, was supposed to be an opponent here for Diaz. Didn't quite work out that way. This was 130 pounds. Of course, Diaz has recently moved up to 130 from 126. Always lacked real power. Always lacked real power, even as a featherweight, and certainly does now at 130. Didn't really look great in this fight. Didn't look bad, but didn't look good either. Kind of just looked flat. And he claims that he hurt his hand. I can't remember which round it was, but he claims he hurt his hand early and that affected his fighting. Either way, he gets the W here. And they still want to do a title shot maybe with Tevin Farmer. So depending on what happened with Diaz's hand, that's definitely going to get pushed back to next year. But he's as ready as he's ever going to be for a title shot. So if, if Golden Boy could get him in there against Tevin Farmer on the zone, it should be a fairly easy fight to make. Let's see it. Salem Moon says Farmer Diaz, good one. Yeah, I like it too. I think it's a good matchup. Neither guy hits very hard. It's absolutely going the distance. But it's going to be interesting to watch those guys play chess. Salun Mooney says, rather see Diaz Cancio. I would too, but I think style-wise, Farmer is probably better for Diaz. Seriously. And maybe if Diaz beats Farmer, Golden Boy would have an all-in-house fight, and I think it'd be a unification fight at that point, between Diaz and Cancio, and that'd be a good one here in Southern California. That'd do good business here. So I think that's their long-term hope and plan at Golden Boy. Also, September 21st, Bakersfield, California, PBC and Fox Sports 1. Uh, this was a good card, man. Loaded card. The preliminary fight started on Fox Sports 2. And then the main card, which I think had three bouts, went over to Fox Sports 1. And um, the main event didn't even start till about 1 a.m. Eastern. Luckily, here I was on the West Coast this time. But man, I was up till, or I was working on this. Uh, my post-fight article and my recap and everything for Ring TV until about 11 o'clock p.m. here, which means my, my friends, my peers on the East Coast were working on this fight until 2 in the morning. PBC, you got to start these shows earlier, man. I love that you're stacking the cards with all these prospects, but that's just too freaking late for a main event. If I give top rank and ESPN shit for doing the same thing, I got to be fair and give you guys shit too. Got to make that earlier, man. Got to make that earlier. Anyway, this was a fun card. A lot of good action. Several good, good knockouts. The one that really stands out, though, Chris Colbert. KO1 Miguel Bertrand Jr. Beltran is a good, experienced fighter who's been in there with legit competition. And uh, for Colbert to go in there, one hit or quitter style, boom, drop him. Uh, Beltran fell on his face. When you see a dude fall on his face... Yeah, he's knocked the F out. Uh, Colbert is 13-0 now, has a KO of the year contender for real. And he came, coming into this fight, I think he only had like five knockouts in his first 12 wins, something like that. Wasn't really seen as a one-hitter-quitter guy. And boy, did he change that perception. Because uh, Beltran's been down. I think he's even been stopped. But he's never been out like this before. So this was a big, big statement. And... He did that on FS1 on national TV, and he actually got in as the co-main, which I thought was surprising because Delorme, Delorme and Williams fought. I thought that was going to be the co-main, but this Chris Colbert fight ended up being the co-main. And man, did he take advantage of his opportunity? People are going to want to see him again. Just before that, I talked about Thomas Delorme and Terrell Williams. Delorme, the Puerto Rican veteran, Scores a unanimous decision win over the previously undefeated Terrell Williams out of L.A., who's had a really interesting, odd career uh, as a welterweight prospect. He's actually 35 years old. A 35-year-old welterweight prospect. That sounds crazy. Went pro late, I think in his mid-20s, and then he's had a lot of inactivity. Several years out of the ring. So just odd kind of career. And anyway, he... Um, was dropped in the final round, Williams was. Delorme, this was a good back-and-forth fight. A lot of two-way action. I thought Williams started good, but class started to reveal itself over time. And Delorme, just from the middle rounds on, pretty much controlled this fight. And even though the rounds were close, competitive, Delorme was winning the rounds. You know what I'm saying? So um, in terms of how you score this fight, it felt eight rounds to two, seven rounds to three in terms of how you score it. But I could see watching it why you'd think this was pretty close, you know, at least some of the rounds. But uh, getting that knockdown in the final round for Delorme, and Williams could barely survive, barely beat the count and stayed on his feet, that was kind of the stamping on it 
for Delorme, who wins. And uh, look, he might get himself another title opportunity at welterweight. I mean, he's with PBC. PBC owns that division. And at some point, he might be in there for another, get another title shot in his career. Main event, Alfredo Pero Angulo came in three in five in his last eight fights against Peter Quillen, former middleweight title holder. I talked about these guys being similar in age, but not wear and tear. Similar in age, uh, but in terms of boxing age, boxing years, Angulo almost twice as old as Quillen, right? In the early rounds, the first couple rounds, that's kind of what you were seeing. You were seeing the much fresher, sharper, faster, more athletic Quillen just pepper Angulo. And Angulo was just really coming forward. Until the naked eye, it would appear, oh man, Angulo ain't doing shit. He's not really throwing much. He's just walking forward. What the hell is this? There's no science or technical quality to this. Guess what? There was. He was applying constant physical, but more importantly, mental and emotional pressure on Quillen. And he was setting things up. He knew somehow Abel Sanchez, who trained, um, who trained Angulo for this fight, saw something in Quillen where he is just wide open for looping right hands. That dude backs straight up with his head up in the air, just giving it to you. And Angulo would just kind of feint a jab down to the body and then come over the top with a looping right hand and it would connect. And since Quillen was already backing up, even though he saw the shot coming, it's not like he got some of the shots he didn't see coming. But once he knew it was coming, it's crazy to me that he couldn't make the adjustment. Quillen just could not make the technical adjustment to dip down to his left or to come forward when he saw Angulo uh, shooting that. Just look at his right shoulder. You're going to start to see it move. Uh, you guys are saying he's shot. I hear you. I hear you. But still, somebody in Quillen's corner could be like, dude, he's just nailing you with the overhand right. Make an adjustment. But he didn't. He kept doing the same thing. And I'll give Quillen credit. He was in shape. If he wasn't in shape, he would have got stopped. The only reason he survived, because I feel like he was, I'm not going to say drunk, but he was buzzed clearly multiple times in this fight. For him to stay on his feet and go the distance shows that he was in really good shape physically and he was determined to stay in the fight. And he kept trying. So you got to give Quillen credit. He showed a lot of heart, but everything he threw was on the back foot. He was peppering with jabs. And if you look at the punch stats, uh, I don't have them on me, but the punch stats really don't matter because he landed a lot more jabs. I want to say, I I posted them in my article on Ring TV, but uh, it was something like 90 to 10 or something that, that landed jabs in this fight. But it didn't matter because everything was on the back foot and Angulo had more power connects, and his mattered more. His mattered more. El Ragoda says, Quillen got a gift against Andy Lee. Yeah, you're not the only one who feels that way. And Quillen, you know, you think about it. Coming into this fight, he had one loss. That one loss to Danny Jacobs. Looking at all the technical flaws this dude has. He couldn't get out of the way from right hands from Alfredo Angulo, who makes Joe Joyce look kind of fast, let's be honest, as a super middleweight. You can't get out of the way of those right hands. They landed the whole damn fight. It's, how many rounds, guys, did Peter Quillen stumble to his corner and have to hold the ropes for support as he sat down, sat his ass on the stool? He couldn't sit down under his own leg strength. He had to use the ropes to lower himself onto his stool. Yeah, uh, Delita says Quillen has never been that good. Yeah, he, he only had one loss coming into this fight. And that tells me that that's management. That's Uncle Al managing and advising his fighter in a way that's, you know, uh, low risk, high reward to kind of protect him. And we see this with a lot of promoters, sure, but you just kind of see it a little bit more on that side of the aisle with guys like Peter Quillen. How many fighters like that can we point out over the last five, 10 years? There's several of them, man, but when you watch that fight, Knowing the ages of these two fighters and everything, if you were brand new to boxing and you watched that fight Saturday night, would you think Peter Quillen only had one loss? 
I would look at that and be like, what, which guy is the former champion? Which guy is seen as the, you know, the opponent here and the journeyman? In the first couple rounds, that was clear what they were trying to sell you. But man, by the sixth, seventh, eighth round, that message was not so clear anymore. So remember, I mean, at one point, Uncle Al paid Peter Quillen not to fight and to give up his title, which became vacant, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's just kind of crazy. And that's why this guy only had one loss. Had he stuck around and fought some of the best fighters at 160, clearly he would have had multiple losses. Where's he at at this point in his career? I think it's almost time to hang him up, son. I just... For Alfredo Angulo, do I think now he can beat any of the top super middleweights? Do I think he can win a title or anything? No, not at all. But this was a good quality win for him. Uh, the fans loved it. I mean, clearly he'll fight on, but any of the top super middleweights punish Angulo and, and stop him. And of course, same thing with Peter Quillen. So this ended up being a surprisingly really good fight. And Again, I have to give Quillen credit because a lot of guys at the stage of their career that he's in right now would have just said, ah, screw it, I'm done. This dude's pounding me. We're in the eighth round. I've earned my damn money. I'm going to sleep. I'm going to, I'm going to take a knee here. And he kept fighting hard and he kept trying. He wasn't just trying to survive. He was trying to win. And he, he, he put some, some leather on Angulo too. So both men deserve tremendous credit for giving us a good fight. And this was one of those sneaky good cards. And sometimes with these matchups of like older guys, you don't know what you're going to get. But sometimes they end up being the best damn fights. These guys who are either former title holders, former title challengers, on the backside of their career. You put them in the ring and you just see what the hell happens. And this was a case where it just worked out great. So, all right, that's the review. Guys, get in some questions, man. Let's do some questions here. Some Q&A time. And then I'm going to bounce. I need a freaking nap. I need a drink. <laughs> it's been a long two or three days, man. But I've gotten a lot of work done. We've got a bunch of stuff coming out on the channel, a bunch of stuff on Ring TV. So getting some great, some great material for you guys over, over the, the last few days and this coming week. Let's see. Muscle Memory asks, what do you think of a possible Jean-Pascal-Badu-Jack fight and still no opponent announced for Beevil? Huh. Dude, what did we just talk about between uh, Quillen and Angulo? Yeah, sign me up for Pascal and Badu-Jack. Badu-Jack is one of the real good guys in boxing. Terrific, terrific human being. Does a lot of great charitable work. So he's a good guy outside the ring. And he's an honest fighter who gives his all inside the ring. And he's been in some entertaining fights recently, right? Some bloody fights. Yeah, man, sign me up for that shit. Put it in Montreal. That would do a hell of a crowd. Montreal, Toronto, whatever. Montreal belongs there. That would be a hell of a lot of fun. Sign me up for it. As far as Dimitri Bivol, no opponent announced yet. However, he will fight on that Oleksandr Usyk card against, uh, I can't remember the guy Usyk's fighting. Sponge? Spong? Spong? Can't remember how you say his name. Uh, I think it's October 12th in Chicago. Which, by the way, uh, we got this cleared and okayed yesterday, Tiff and I did. Tiff and I will be covering that card for Ring TV. So, any of you in Chicago going to that card, which Dimitri Bivo will fight on, uh, we will be there. So, uh, we'll see you guys there in Chicago next month. That's going to be dope. Um, you guys have already seen, you know, I know Bivo pretty good. Uh, I did a piece uh, on him in Ring Magazine last year. I've done interviews on my channel with him, so I know him and his team real good. I know Usyk and his team pretty good, Igus Klimas, those guys, so we'll be able to get some cool interviews. And um, Jessica McCaskill, one of the female fighter from Chicago on that undercard, uh, I know her trainer, Rick Ramos. In fact, Tiffany and I have worked out, hung out at that gym before there in Chicago. So uh, there's a lot of people on that card that we know pretty well, and it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be there covering that for the ring. So see you guys next month. Breaking news. You heard it right here. Hamed says, I look like Tom Loeffler. Well, Hamed, I wish my bank account looked like Tom Loeffler. <laughs> uh, Louis Garibay asks, how was Media Day lunch with Triple G? What did you ask him? 
was good. It was fun. Uh, unfortunately, you know, it took me an hour to get there. I had to get right back, which took another hour so I could get stuff. Literally, guys, right before I went live on the show, I sent my article off to Doug Fisher and um, got that out. So they're probably editing that and posting it as we talk here. Uh, but I got an uh, interview with Gennady Golovkin. So there was a roundtable interview where we talked for like 30 minutes. I filmed that. The audio is not great because it's literally the table of people talking to Gennady across the table. Um, but I'll post that. It's about 30 minutes. So you guys, you know, Gennady Golovkin, junkies, you'll get that. But then I did a one-on-one with him later on. Gennady did maybe five one-on-one interviews after talking to everybody. And uh, I'm one of the lucky guys that got to chat with him for a few minutes. I would have did a one-on-one with Tom Loeffler and with uh, Jonathan Banks. But man, I just didn't have the time. I had to haul ass to get back here. I didn't even really get to sit down and eat a lot of food. I had a couple of snacks and drinks, but normally at those media lunches, man, I take full advantage because Tom Loeffler usually puts on a spread. Wasn't able to do that today. I I had to get right back uh, downtown, so that sucks. But the interview with Gennady will be posted tonight, so look for that and you'll see what I got to ask him. Let's see. Jack Alter asks, Haney versus Gervonta Davis. I get this question a lot. Right now, I would take Devin Haney all day. Even though Gervonta Davis has faced better opposition, he has. At 135, just all day long and twice on Sunday, I'm taking Devin Haney. Uh, better skills, much more relaxed in the ring, seems to see things coming. And the big, powerful punches from Tank Davis that he's hurt people with, I just think that Haney will sit back, look for those, see them coming, and counter. His length, uh, his quickness, his vision. He did, the kid has vision, man. I like, I like Haney big in that fight. Delita Harrell asks, what do you think about a Canelo-Pascal fight after Kovalev in case there's nothing down at 160. Well, Delita, there's plenty down at 160. So let me make it clear. Win, lose, or draw against Kovalev. I want Canelo back down at 160. And for the record, so does Gennady Golovkin. But uh, they're not going to sit around and wait for him this time. But they'd love to do a third fight with him. Would I like to see a Pascal fight? Sure. But I would kind of view that fight like a poor man's version of his fight with Kovalev. Because... Uh, should Canelo beat Kovalev, Pascal, especially at this stage, is, it, it has never been as good of a fighter as Sergey Kovalev. And even at this stage, uh, as faded as Kovalev is, Pascal is even more faded. So I really wouldn't like to see that fight. Um, if somehow Pascal were to fight another top 10 guy, beat them, and really, really solidify himself that his last fight wasn't kind of a fluke thing, and he really is kind of still an elite level Super middleweight, sure. But there are just bigger names and bigger fish to fry for Canelo at 160 and even at 168. So uh, I wouldn't love that fight. Coming off that fight with Kovalev, I just wouldn't. Robert Palmer asks, Why the hell do all the PBC shows run over the allotted time? My DVR missed the whole main event and I added an extra 30 minutes yeah, I've heard that from probably a dozen people over the last couple of days. I've text messages, emails, everything. I haven't even caught up with everything. But um, it's, it's because they stack those shows. I mean, Tom Brown, the promoter, he does an awesome job stacking those shows. He, there were so many undefeated prospects on that card. The problem is that stuff can run late. And I just think that when they went over to FS1, I think it was 10.30 Eastern time. They should have had two fights, not three. They had that third fight there, that Chris Colbert fight. I know they wanted to get him exposure and everything, and things ran kind of late early on. But that Chris Colbert fight probably should have been on FS2. And you should have just saw the Delorme-Williams fight and then right to the main event on FS1. So it was just, honestly, too many fights, which, you know, what, what boxing fan would say, oh, man, there's too many fights. But on TV... You got to cut some of that shit down. You just have to. That's why um, the streaming platforms, in my opinion, have an advantage. No commercials, none of that kind of stuff that can 
add to the length of a card, you could just run it. Now, the disadvantage with that is sometimes you just have a million vignettes, right? And think like ESPN Plus with that Fury Volant card, sometimes you have to fill time with a zillion vignettes and pointless interviews. Uh, I would just like to see these guys run through their cards. I will say though, these PBC shows, go see them live. They're very, very fun to see live because they just run through fights, man. Especially Tom Brown's cards. He puts on at least a dozen fights. You're going to see a ton of fights. So I would say those are better cards to go see live than to watch on TV. Depending on where you're at, obviously. Joshua Wilder says, Triple G versus Canelo 3 not happening as Canelo is concerned. Yes, as far as Canelo is concerned. However, Oscar wants it, and the folks at the zone want it. So ultimately, again, I've been proven wrong in these things before, but I still think money is going to talk. It's still the biggest event that can be made. I still think it's very possible we get that fight next May. Hamed asks, is Spence Porter sold out? No. As far as I know, no, it is not. However, Usyk, Sponge, or I can't think of how this, Spong, almost is sold out. Now, Spence Porter probably will be sold out by fight night. But as far as I know right now, there are still tickets on sale. Elver Goda says, the zone cards have been the best this year so far. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, if you look at the last three months of the year, top to bottom, yeah, for your bang for your buck, sure. Uh, that's hard to argue, man. Those of you who missed it, I did a video comparing all the different platforms, how much they're costing you and what you've gotten for your money uh, halfway through the year. So I did that a couple months back. Go back and find that. I'll do it again after the third quarter is complete when I get back to Atlanta. So at some point in October, I'll do it again comparing the first three quarters. And of course, I'll do it at year end. Jack Alter as Bevel versus Jacobs. That's not happening October 12th. But would I like to see it? Hells yeah. Sign me up for that. Daniel Jacobs, Dimitri Bevel against any of the top guys at 168. Because I think Bevel's plan is to move down. Canada Chris says Andre needs to stop wasting his career. I'm with you. Demetrius Andre's name, of course, came up today at that Triple G lunch thing. And uh, I talked to some of his guys on camera, but also some people off camera, off the record, and a couple of network guys off record. And Demetrius Andre's name keeps popping up, but everyone says the same damn thing. Why isn't he doing what Golovkin did? Golovkin was being avoided. You, you absolutely can make an argument that people are avoiding Demetrius Andre. Who, who, who like, is rushing to fight the guy? Nobody. However, there was a time where Gennady Golovkin was flat out ducked. I mean, just ducked by the entire industry, basically. And he completely reinvented himself. He, he moved to the States and he got busy. He fought four times a year, three, four times a year, several years in a row. Every three months, Golovkin was fighting on HBO. Was never in a casino. Was never in Vegas. It was L.A. or New York. That's it. L.A., New York. New York, L.A. Back and forth. Back and forth. And every time he did it, it'd be a sold-out crowd and probably be a knockout. Was he fighting a lot of B-level opposition? Yes, because the A-level opposition was ducking him. So if Demetrius Andrade, Jamal Charlo, Billy Joe Saunders... Those guys started pulling that tactic. They get the big fights. But until they do, man, you're kind of just sitting around bitching and complaining, coming off as an entitled little prick who thinks people are just supposed to hand you shit. Nah, my man, you got to go out and earn it. And in boxing, you go out and earn it with punches. You know what I'm saying? It's the entertainment business. Look, I, I, I tell the truth about this shit and people say I'm being a hater. I'm not being a hater. I'm just being a fucking realist. It's the same thing when I say female fighters don't deserve as much as male fighters. Until, and it likely will happen, until a female fighter comes along that draws the attention and the fanfare that the male fighters do. Like Ronda Rousey did in UFC. If there was a boxing version of Ronda Rousey, she'd make millions upon millions of dollars as well. It just hasn't happened. 
which in my opinion goes to show you a lot of what UFC is. Not to beat up on UFC, but there's, there's a difference in the global talent pool in UFC, MMA, whatever, versus boxing. It's just different, guys. And that's why you haven't seen a female come along and take over the sport for five years and be the biggest brand of sports ever known. That shit ain't just going to happen. You can't just create that in the media, basically the way Dana White did over at UFC. That's not going to work in boxing. If there's ever a female version of Ronda Rousey in boxing, she ain't going to be a hype job. She's going to be the real deal because she's going to have to prove herself. That's how it works in this sport. Not that we don't have hype jobs, but hype jobs get exposed. They don't become the face of the sport for five plus years. And the the biggest brand ever in the sport, like we saw with Ronda Rousey in UFC. Uh, We have a question here. Is Triple G Derevyanchenko almost sold out? Not sold out yet, um, but, you know, I'm not sure if that's going to sell out. It's going to be close. It's going to be close. Probably will. Probably will. We still got a couple weeks out. It's in the right market. It's in the right venue. You have a guy who's a Russian-speaking fighter from the old Soviet bloc. At least that's the way he's seen in Gennady Golovkin. Fought in New York a bunch of times. Set records at Madison Square Garden. Going up against a Ukrainian who now lives in Brooklyn. Fights out of New York a lot. Uh, his last really big fight against Daniel Jacobs, that was in New York. Yes, I know he fought Cole K also. So I think it's going to work out. And yeah, I can see a sellout there. But man, they got to get... Uh, Ali uh, Akhmadov, he's on that card, but they got to get the rest of the undercard announced, which, by the way, Tom Loeffler says they will do next week. Jack Alter asked, did Triple G duck Ward? Are you trolling? No, he did not duck Andre Ward. Delita Harrell says, Triple G looked bad last time out. Delita, you cannot judge a fighter based on their last performance, particularly when you look at the opponent Triple G was facing, the layoff, everything else. He's going to look much, much sharper against uh, Derevyanchenko. In fact, I was there at Gennady today. We gave each other a hug. Haven't seen each other in a year. Uh, that, that meant a lot. When Triple G was hey, hey, what's up, Mike? Hey, what's going on? Look around you. All that. And um, dude's on weight already. Dude's right there. He's right there. He's ready to go. Hamad asks, has Andre Ward and Steve Kim met? To my knowledge, uh, yeah, I think early on in Andre Ward's career, certainly. But uh, that's a question for Steve Kim. (laughs) I saw Steve for like two minutes today. He was at that press thing for a few minutes and then he had to bounce. So I barely got to even say hi to him. We've both been so damn busy, but of course I'll see Steve this week. Jack Alter asks, Mike, did you feel his hand strength? Apparently his grip is unreal. Gennady is a solid guy. I've seen him at the gym taking like a 50-pound dumbbell and placing it on the uh, canvas. And he'll literally grab it with his hand, right, with his forearm flat on the canvas and just rotate it to where the back of his forearm is on the canvas and then rotate it back. So he's just using his wrist muscles, his wrist strength to turn over that dumbbell. He's not throwing it up in the air and doing some of the things you see other guys do with these, uh, I'm sorry, kettlebell, not dumbbell, kettlebell. So he's doing that with a kettlebell, just rotating it with his forearm flat on the canvas. I've never seen another fighter do that. Also, another thing that I saw him do up at Big Bear at Abel Sanchez's gym, they take a dumbbell, not a kettlebell, an actual dumbbell, and Abel would weld off one end of the dumbbell. So one end would be fat, it'd be heavier, right? It'd be uh, heavier on one side than the other. And he would have his guys shadow box with the fat end of the dumbbell in their hand. So naturally, your hand would turn over because of the weight with the dumbbell. And that builds up that inner muscle, that like little string on the inside of your forearm. That's something Abel does with a lot of his fighters. He was doing it with Alfredo Angulo. It's why his fighters turn over hard overhand rights. If you watch, any guy that's been traded by Abel Sanchez cuts hard to the body and has a nice overhand looping right. It's because of the way they train with that dumbbell exercise. It's pretty cool. And then, of course, they take that to the big circular pad and work it all out. So, yeah, little things like that. I mean, Triple G, 
He, he's absolutely got really, really strong forearms, and he does insane neck exercises. It sounds crazy, but he's probably got the strongest neck in boxing, and yes, I'm including heavyweights in that. No exaggeration. I've seen some of that stuff up close. He does reps of 20, 30 of these exercises. I could do like three of them, and I'm a pretty strong guy. John Uden with the super chat. What's up, my man? Thank you very, very much. Says, did Jojo Diaz lose favor with Golden Boy after losing to Russell or just been pushed to the back in priority with their current stable of fighters? Golden Boy certainly does not punish their fighters for losing. Not at all. Um, some of it has just been uh, on Jojo Diaz. He's had some personal issues, some, some issues with depression and some things like that in his personal life. You guys have probably seen his personality change a little bit in the last year or so. He had his crazy hairdo. Last weekend for his fight, he dyed it some weird. It looked like leopard print dye on his hair. Um, so it's not Golden Boy punishing him. Some of it has been on Joseph Diaz Jr. He's gone through some things, and he's pushed hard and gotten through it. Props to him. And he's spoken about it publicly, which I think is really cool. But uh, that plus uh, politics. I mean, that's, you know, Jojo Diaz wants the top fighters at 130. He'd love to fight Tevin Farmer. That's who he's targeting. And it just hasn't happened yet. They can't force these guys to fight. I think it'll happen though, particularly with his less than spectacular performance last Saturday. And guys, I started the show at the start of the show talking about Gary Russell Jr. and Leo Santa Cruz and the situation going on there and how fighters know when something's real or when it's being played up to try to make a fight happen. I don't, I'm not trying to make no conspiracy theory, but Joseph Diaz Jr. didn't look particularly great last Saturday. If that helps him get that fight with Tevin Farmer that he really, really wants, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that that wasn't not on purpose. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, his performance. So just remember, these guys are always trying to plan a step or two ahead. You know what I'm saying? Faint Cantu says, I love your conspiracy theories. <laughs> Canada Chris, is Triple G training at uh, Big Bear with Jonathan Banks? Yes, he is. In Shane Mosley's old gym, which is not even like a mile from Abel Sanchez's place. I think that's crazy. Uh, it, I still don't like Golovkin training in altitude like that for extended periods of time. But he enjoys it. He likes being up there away from the, the noise and the city and everything. It's just what he's going to do for the remainder of his career. Jack says Mike's going to go on a rant about this altitude stuff. Normally I would, bro. I'm too tired today. I am too tired today. Uh, T-Duck asks, could Triple G KO a heavyweight? Well, what kind of heavyweight? I'm a heavyweight. You could KO me. <laughs> I'm a heavyweight right now. I should be a cruiserweight. I've been drinking too much damn beer. Look, anyone can knock out anyone on a given night. Could Golovkin knock out a top 20 heavyweight? No. No, he couldn't. I mean, we have weight classes for a reason. Could he knock out Tom Schwartz? Maybe. Maybe. All right, one more, guys, and then we're out of here. We've been going for about an hour. One more. Get it in. Get it in. I'm going to wait here. <laughs> Canada Chris says, I used to be a professional sausage maker. Really? Well, what kind of sausage? <laughs> yeah prime tv says triple g ko safari yeah he's not a top he's not even a he's really a cruiserweight right but uh yeah john uden khan called out brooke beat it down maybe those two will fight one day i don't know LC says, best jab in boxing now. I guess you're asking the question. Best jab in boxing now. Ooh, that's tough, bro. Um, you know what? I'm going to go with Sergey Kovalev. I think that dude's jab is still pretty damn... It, it's not the hardest jab, but it's the most educated off-speed jab. That's shot from different angles at different speeds, different velocities. And he wins fights off of it. There are faster, harder jabs... Canada Chris says Haney's jab. Haney's jab is faster, crisper, but he's not fighting top 10 guys with it. Kovalev is. And Kovalev has more variety and experience with his jab. I'm going to go Sergey Kovalev on that one. All right, I thought it's Gil Falkenthal's on. The one fight with Jojo Diaz will get is a rematch with Andrew Cancio. 
they do want that fight at 130. They fought at 126, and I know they want to do that fight at 130 now for a title. Golden Boy Promotions' mission is to get Joseph Diaz a title. They've been close a couple times. He's come up short in the fight, or he's come up short, or actually heavy, on the scale. And um, that's cost him the, the, the title. Golden Boy will get Joseph Diaz a title at 130. I'm pretty confident in that. Whether it comes against Concio or Farmer, it'll happen. All right, guys. I'm losing my voice here. So, Jack Alter, last question. Can Triple G win against Canelo if the fight happens in 2020? Yes. Yes, he can. Uh, let's see how he looks against Derevyanchenko. If he struggles, if he barely gets by Derevyanchenko, I would say no. If he dominates and stops Derevyanchenko, I would say yeah, absolutely. So that's going to be a good measuring stick for, for what level Golovkin is at. Because Derevyanchenko is definitely a top 10, maybe top 5 middleweight. So if Golovkin can dominate him and stop him, then he's in business still. He's that elite level fighter. If he struggles and barely gets by, wins like seven rounds to five or something, that's different, bro. That, that's different. So we'll see what happens. It's going to happen in a couple weeks. All right, guys, Thursday night, we're going to preview Spence Porter from right here. Literally, I'm looking out the window here at Staples Center. It is not even maybe three blocks from my hotel. So... Um, yeah, it's going to be a fun show Thursday. I should have more energy then, hopefully more rest. I'll see you at the fights.